This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It is my job to have a giant radar screen. In other words, not only to deal with all the news that we grapple with today, but to keep an eye out for what might pop tomorrow or the next day that I've got to add to the podcast or to my television program or for column writing or maybe, you know, just for my mental health. So for example, it's been a number of days now and we haven't heard directly from Brittany Griner. That's not a criticism. You know, she's entitled to as much time as she needs to recover and feel like she wants to speak. But, you know, any day I could see popping up a video that she would make um, or something that, you know, would get worldwide attention, you know, given especially the controversial nature of her release from a Russian penal colony um, in that prisoner swap. But the one that I thought by now would certainly have popped is the Harvey Weinstein trial. I mean, this trial went on for a while, and, you know, this is the one where a number of women, Jane Doe's one through four, um, testified about terrible things they say the fallen mogul did to them. And it's been nine days now, and there hasn't been a verdict. Now, you never know, because it could be one juror who's a holdout. Uh, It could be heading for a hung jury. There will be no verdict this week, because today and tomorrow there's no deliberations. Um, 37 hours of deliberations. Uh, The judge has acknowledged that the um, jurors have asked for certain exhibits or for testimony to be read back to them, but won't provide the details of what that is. I I don't know. I mean, I just think, let's get a verdict here. I don't think this is, you know, a complicated case of white-collar fraud. But as I say, from the outside, you never know. First of all, it is just a miserable, cold, rainy day here in the nation's capital. I hope wherever you are, the weather is a little bit better. But I will plow through uh, to tell you that the Washington Post is going to have more layoffs, cutting more jobs. Now, this is after announcements in previous weeks that the Post is, one, has now folded its Sunday opinion section called Outlook, and two, is about to eliminate its longtime Sunday magazine. All those people lost their jobs. They weren't offered jobs elsewhere. And laid off the veteran Pulitzer Prize-winning dance critic because, screw this, you know, probably doesn't drive a lot of numbers. So so what if she won a Pulitzer? She's no longer relevant. So Fred Ryan, the publisher of the paper, um, had a, one of these company-wide meetings, town hall thing. He said the cuts uh, next year will probably amount to a single-digit percentage. Um, but then he said the company will add new jobs to offset the loss of 
positions, I love this corporate speak phrase, that are no longer serving readers. We're not scaling back on our ambitions and blah, blah, blah. So first of all, a lot of post-staffers were, were pretty upset that Fred Ryan made this announcement and then just walked off, didn't take questions. Because they had a lot of questions. But the way I read this is, remember who the owner is, uh, the way I read this is, when you say things that are no longer serving readers, it's just pulling back more and more and more from the print edition. And the new jobs that will be added undoubtedly will be about, you know, video production, social media optimization, podcasting, you name it. And look, like every business, the paper has to do, the Washington Post company has to do what's in its own interest. But Jeff Bezos clearly, I think, wants to move in a more digital direction. But if you're so if you're a subscriber to the paper, and one of the things you like is the Sunday magazine, and now you're not getting a, a, a magazine, and now you're not getting an opinion section. I mean, there's an op-ed page and an opinions essay, they call it, which is usually very long, and so far it's been pretty boring. Um, then I think you're going to question whether you want to continue to pay the money to have it home delivered to your house. I mean, a lot of papers going through this. Obviously, the Post gets more attention. People don't like the Washington Post. Like, aha, this is because their coverage is so biased. And finally, the public's catching up with them. Well, you know, I, I'm not saying that that can't be a factor. But clearly, uh, with the economy slowing down, which is what I think is happening, you know, the Post and I think other media companies will be hunkering down to try to save money. Which leads me to story number one, having to do with, yes, Twitter. Now, this may not be the most important story out there at the moment, but I think it's one that has attracted a huge amount of attention. And before I dive in, let me just say, I've got some things to say coming up about Harry and Meghan that actually is a great media story, the latest on the whole Netflix thing. So stay tuned for that. Now, about Twitter. There's a guy named Jack Sweeney. He, I didn't even realize this. He's a college kid. He's a sophomore at the University of Central Florida. He was a big Elon Musk fan. This is a guy, though, who, as a sideline, I guess in addition to his college studies, does these jet trackers for various celebrities and others. You know, people want to know, where are they? And so he set up one for Musk at Elon Jet using publicly available air traffic information to map the flights of Elon's private jet, thinking this would be cool. Well, as of yesterday morning, uh, Jack Sweeney was rather stunned, as the Washington Post puts it, to see that his account, which is 530,000 followers, geez, um, had been permanently suspended. No explanation. A notice said only that the company had, after careful review, determined your account broke the Twitter rules without saying what the Twitter rules are that it broke. Now, there's a little bit more to this. And look, a lot of people are saying, oh, Elon Musk, Mr. Free Speech, accusing him of hypocrisy. Oh, but when somebody is doing something that you don't like, bam, they're out. That's how it seems on the surface. But it's a little more complicated than that. So by last night, the account was restored briefly, and Twitter 
said, these are the new rules. You can't post real-time locations of planes used by Elon Musk or any other public figure. But if you include a slight delay, then it's okay. So Sweeney asked, you know, on Twitter, uh, hey, at Elon Musk, how long do I have to delay the data? And, you know, I I have some sympathy here, and I, I have even more when I'll read the next thing, which is, you know, if somebody knows exactly when you're flying and where you're flying, I don't know, would you want that known about you and your family? So last night, Musk just escalates the whole thing. He says that a car carrying his son, who is XAEA12, or commonly described as Little X, had been followed by a crazy stalker in L.A. And that the crazy stalker, thinking that Elon Musk was inside, actually went up on the hood. This is all according to Musk. And now he says legal action is being taken against Sweeney and organizations who supported harm to my family. This is a 20-year-old guy. Uh, But he didn't, all he said was, you know, the plane is taking off from this airport and it's landing at this airport. He didn't have anything about any cars or anything. But, you know, you can kind of figure out if they know you're landing in Los Angeles, maybe a crazy stalker would want to then stake out the airport. I don't know if that's the case here or not. But he is uh, basically, oh, it says legal action is being taken. So he says he's suing. So what's Sweeney's response to all this? I mean, this looks horrible, he says. He literally said he was keeping my account up for free speech. He's trying to bring the company to profitability, and this is the last thing he needs. This guy has uh, cojones, huh? So it turns out that his other Twitter accounts track uh, air travel of college sports teams, Mark Zuckerberg, John Kerry, Donald Trump, and those remain online until uh, after the uh, Musk jet account was suspended. But then those accounts were suspended as well. So this has yet to finish playing out. Uh, Musk posts the following. Any account doxing real-time location info of anyone will be suspended as it is a physical safety violation. This includes posting links to sites with real-time location info. Posting locations someone traveled to on a slightly delayed basis isn't a problem, so is okay. This is all quoting Musk. You know who's uh, speaking out right now is Jack Dorsey, the co-founder of Twitter and who twice uh, served at its, as its CEO, so for many years of its you know, relatively short experience, uh, existence, Dorsey was the man. And, you know, I, I love these writers to say, well, he didn't mention Elon Musk by name, but here, here's what he has to say. He has to say a lot about Musk and he has a lot to say about himself. He says, when I led Twitter and the Twitter of today, uh, Musk is saying that uh, what Twitter failed to do was be resilient to corporate and government control and that moderation being best implemented by algorithmic choice. I'll explain that in a minute because it's kind of like tech speak. Um, He's come to believe three things, and here they are. His biggest mistake, says Jack Dorsey, was continuing to invest in building tools for us to manage the public conversation versus building tools for the people using Twitter to easily manage it for themselves. 
This, he says, burdened the company with too much power and opened us up to significant outside pressure, such as advertising budgets. So basically he's saying this thing I built has become something of a Frankenstein monster. It's too powerful. And that means we get pressure from all sides, including from advertisers. I continue to believe there was no ill intent or hidden agendas, and everyone acted according to the best information we had at the time. But he says mistakes were made. He's already admitted a mistake on the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story. As for the Twitter files, he said he wished they'd been published differently, WikiLeaks style, with many more eyes and interpretations to consider. Finally, he says there's nothing to hide, only a lot to learn from. The current attacks on my former colleagues could be dangerous and doesn't solve anything. If you want to blame, direct it at me and my actions or lack thereof. Okay, Jack, I think that some people may take you up on that. But I think it was kind of classy to say blame me and at the same time to say he made mistakes. And look, people, most of the mainstream media weren't complaining about Twitter being too powerful when Jack Dorsey was in charge. But of course, we didn't know about the blacklisting and shadow banning of conservatives and the way in which Donald Trump was banned and all of that. Now that Elon Musk is in charge, oh, it's too powerful. A a single billionaire shouldn't be able to control this important public digital square. Don't see them saying that about Zuck and others. Well, you know, that's part of the ongoing debate. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Okay, I want to get to number two here and the increasingly infamous, I guess you would say, Sam Bankman-Fried. Because now, with him being held in the Bahamas without bail, with him having been charged in an indictment by the Justice Department, there's starting to be a broader debate about the cryptocurrency industry itself and the role of federal regulators. Now, I touched on this yesterday, but we now have a pretty good look at the SEC and how badly the SEC has fallen down on the job. Because, you know, while I certainly think that if, I mean, this was a company, I'm almost using air quotes, that didn't even have decent records. They they had billions of dollars, and Sam Bankman-Fried and his girlfriend and their colleagues uh, living in this uh, luxury penthouse, they, they didn't even, you know, have accountants. They kept track of these billions of dollars on QuickBooks, you know, which any bozo can download. That easily could have been found out if somebody looked at it. So here, Washington Post says the SEC has said for years that most digital coins are legally obliged to be registered by the government, same way stocks and bonds are. Of course, the whole selling point of crypto is that it was, you know, this fascinating dark business where you got these coins that were worth something, but they weren't basically being federally regulated. But only a tiny fraction 
of these coins are registered. Of an estimated 10,000 crypto tokens, fewer than 10, okay? That's not a typo. Fewer than 10 are registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Among the exchanges such as FTX, where crypto was traded, enforcement is scant. That's a real newspaper word, isn't it? Enforcement is lame. Enforcement is non-existent. Enforcement is a joke. That's what I would say. None of the largest exchanges have registered with the SEC. And the SEC hasn't taken any legal action to force them to do that. So the chair of the SEC is Gary Gensler. Been around a long time. Uh, He's been the chairman since early 2021, so he's a Biden appointee. He's compared crypto markets to the Wild West, and he's encouraged them come in and register. But, you know, you don't have to beg them. You have powers as the SEC. So I guess there was a hearing on this yesterday, and some um, members of Congress are basically saying to Gensler and the SEC, like, how did the industry grow so fast? In case you're wondering, this story says, total value of crypto tokens peaked a year ago at $3 trillion. Without the SEC posing more safeguards on these digital assets. So Elizabeth Warren at this hearing uh, was being very aggressive, and she wrote an op ed for the Wall Street Journal saying that while she agrees the SEC has the authority to bring the industry to heel, quote, power is worthless if the cop on the beat won't use it, and that the agency has fallen far behind as the crypto industry has drawn in millions of new investors. So Gensler told the Washington Post that, uh, well, we've filed a number of enforcement cases. I couldn't be prouder of this agency, he said. Really? That's your response? Not, um, you know, it's important to take a look at what we did and didn't do right and improve for the future. No, you couldn't be prouder now that people have lost billions of dollars in this, what is alleged to be outright fraud by FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. Look at the next paragraph. The SEC has filed lawsuits against unregistered coins 44 times. This is going back to 2013 to last year. Those represent less than, or far less than, 1% of the unregistered coins. And you couldn't be prouder? You need to do a little, you need a better PR advice, dude. You need to do a little soul-searching here. SEC has the power. You subpoena things. You file lawsuits. Look, the SEC now has brought this sweeping civil complaint against Sam Bankman over FTX, and FTX, I should say. Um, But it's too late. You came in after the horse was out of the barn. Most of these people are never going to get most of these money back. It's just not happening. But you could have acted. You blew it. You should be apologizing. I just don't get it. Uh, You know the Shark Tank guy, Kevin O'Leary, who's on that TV show? Well, he uh, was one of the witnesses at one of these hearings. He lost $10 million on his own crypto investment. But don't feel sorry for him. And he's blaming these other companies. I didn't do anything wrong. He was paid $15 million to be a spokesman for FTX, to be a pitch man for FTX. He's not the only one. There's a bunch of other celebs. But, you know, basically what this guy sells, unlike, say, Tom Brady, is his business expertise. 
Shark Tank, you know, we decide what, we have a show where we decide who to give money to, who's got a good business plan. Well, I think his reputation has taken a little bit of a hit. Story number three. Uh, first of all, before we get into the former president of the United States, if you go on his true social site, there's a sort of a superhero character of Trump with x-ray vision coming out of his eyes, and it says, major announcement today. And a number of folks on TV were having a lot of fun with that. Like, what could Donald Trump do or say that would change the conversation? And, you know, he could say he's going back on Twitter. I don't think it would be, you know, he's hired a campaign manager because that's, you know, he, Trump knows that, that nobody would care of ordinary people. Um, crossed my mind that he could announce a running mate. That would change the conversation. Or it just might be, you know, scheduled for rallies. I mean, who knows what it would be? But that brought me to this interesting piece in Politico by Rich Lowry, who, of course, heads the National Review, which, of course, is at war with Donald Trump because Donald Trump wants it to go out of business. And National Review, I think, is pretty firmly in the anti-Trump camp right now. And... The thing about Trump having declared his candidacy, remember, it was about six days after the midterm elections, was he then didn't do anything. He didn't give a speech. He didn't stage a rally. He just sort of hung out at Mar-a-Lago. So here's what Lowry says. Trump is having the worst campaign launch since Beto O'Rourke. Ouch. Okay. A move that was supposed to demonstrate his strength is showing his weakness move that was meant to keep other candidates out of the race is an invitation to other candidates to get in. Um, a move that was supposed to serve notice of his continued dominance of the party is pointing toward its potential end. He's been eclipsed as an internet troll by Elon Musk and as a vote-getter by Ron DeSantis. Well, I'll have more to say about DeSantis in a minute. He's managed to get the worst of both worlds. He's been largely invisible at the same time, he's been involved in several damaging controversies. So, Lowry goes on to say his midterms got even worse when Herschel Walker and the Georgia runoff went down to defeat. And, of course, you know about the other Trump MAGA candidates that lost those Senate seats in key battleground states, giving the Democrats 51 Democratic senators, you know, if you count Kirsten Sinema. Okay. Then we get to the poll numbers. Wall Street Journal poll I mentioned yesterday, Ron DeSantis nationally, beating Trump 52 to 38 percent. It was a USA Today poll with very similar numbers. Now, I just got to stop here. When we talk about Ron DeSantis as a vote getter, he hadn't gotten any national votes. He's never gotten a vote outside of Florida. So right now, Trump is running against the idea of Ron DeSantis. And if and, and by the way, if DeSantis runs, is, I mean, who wouldn't? looking at uh, those kind of numbers, but they can also lull you or seduce you in a way. Um, then we have to see how he actually performs as a candidate when Trump starts unloading on him. It may be that DeSantis plays well across the country and therefore be immune to Trump's attacks. It may be that he makes a bunch of mistakes um, in trying to play on Trump's turf. And, of course, it's not going to be a one-on-one. -on -one. You know, a whole bunch of Republicans will get in if DeSantis gets in. 
And that may, they may carve up the anti-Trump vote. Anyway, Larry goes on to say, hard to imagine a worse month-long run. Ordinarily, one might say as a way of exaggerating the point that, you know, it could only have been worse if he had dinner with a Nazi. But of course, he did that too. Thank you, Kanye. All right, here comes the cover your ass, to be sure, who really knows paragraph. Uh, it's still early, premature to count him out. Republicans remain scared of him. We still don't know if the only potential candidate to show strength against him, DeSantis, will run or how he'd perform once in the race. Thank you for taking up my point, Rich. It's been no Benia Blitz. It's been no tour of the country. There's been no rollout of policy or any unifying theme. It's just been Trump sitting in Mar-a-Lago, just like before, lurching from one idiotic controversy to another. He, uh, he goes on to say, and this is interesting, that, you know, if you're new to the national stage, then you kind of have room to come up in the polls. If you have universal name ID, and like, who has more universal name ID than DJT, and everyone has an extremely well-formed view of you, very strong opinions, pro and con, right? Then it's a little harder. So he says, how does Donald Trump find a second act? His act hasn't really changed since 2015. So look, uh, he says, well... Maybe he does the rallies. But Lowry says they were fresh and new in 2015 and 2016, powerful during his presidency, and now they're as old and familiar as a Rolling Stones concert. And I think that's unfair to the Rolling Stones. They're still putting on good shows, right? I haven't been to one, but I think it was a way of, yeah. Okay, so let's go to story number four. Now, this is a troubling and sad story a follow-up on that awful, just horrifying hammer attack on Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's 82-year-old husband, uh, by the guy who broke into their San Francisco home looking for the House Speaker, who, by the way, had her um, portrait unveiled at the Capitol, and John Boehner showed up, who, you know, she worked with when um, he was the Republican leader. And he started crying, because Boehner's a big crier. And he talked about how two of his daughters are Democrats and how much they admire Pelosi. Well, I don't know. Does that tell you anything about the direction of the Republican Party? I mean, at least Boehner, you know, Boehner essentially was driven out by his right wing, which also could happen to Kevin McCarthy, or if not driven out, then stymied and frustrated, if indeed he becomes the next House Speaker, which I think he's the odds-on favorite to do. Anyway, getting back to this story which included some, you know, horrible security camp footage of this attack, which I have not had the stomach to look at. But you'll recall the suspect, David DePape, and there is a uh, San Francisco police investigator who testified at this court hearing about her interview with him, an hour-long interview after the attack, when he said, there is evil in Washington, and that's why he was there. He also told her there was a list of other people he wanted to target. We've heard that, but we didn't know the names. Now, they include Gavin Newsom, the California governor, Tom Hanks. Uh, What exactly does attacking Tom Hanks have to do with creating a better political system? I mean, it just goes to show you the depths of depravity here. And Hunter Biden. Uh, This uh, detective did not say uh, whether police had any evidence of such a plot against these other people. 
The Pape said after he saw the lights of a police patrol car, he told Paul Pelosi, I'm not going to surrender. I am here to fight. If you stop me from going after people, you will take the punishment instead. And he described himself as being on a suicide mission. Fortunately, after emergency surgery, Paul Pelosi is in the process of recovering. And, you know, this guy deserves everything that can be done to bring him to account. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Which brings me to the story I've been waiting to share with you, and that is story number five. Now, I've talked before about the Harry and Meghan Netflix business and my amazement that the earlier three episodes had attracted uh, 28 million members of Netflix to stream it. And I don't know, something like 80 million plus hours of viewing. Uh, it's been a smash hit. And I said that, you know, some of it, was, a lot of it was self-serving and some of it was whiny and some of it was justified because of what uh, Harry, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle had to say about the paparazzi always following them. And of course, you remember what happened with his mom. And uh, also the question of race and how Meghan Markle being of mixed race was treated in the UK. But now, this last episode, things really are getting pretty nasty, and it's a very much a media story. So I watched some of the clips, and, and by the way, Harry at various points kind of blames himself, which I think makes him more credible. But in their slickly produced documentary in air quotes, it's a Netflix show, come on. Um, there was a war between the different press offices at Buckingham Palace leading up to a shouting match. And Harry says, the saddest part of it was the wedge created between me and my brother, Will, so that he's now on the institution's side. And part of me, I get that. That's his inheritance. The issue is when someone who is marrying in, meaning his wife, and should be a supporting act, is then stealing the limelight or doing the job better than the person who was born to do this that upsets people, it shifts the balance, which is a slightly diplomatic way of saying, you know, Megan got all this attention and the people who were supposed to get the attention because they were full-fledged members born to the royal family as opposed to somebody, an American no less, who just was there because she got married, um, this sparked a lot of resentment. He doesn't use that word. She talked about doing a royal walking tour and someone saying to her, what you're doing to your father is not right. And that was the first time she realized that, quote, people actually believe this stuff, referring to tabloid stories, claiming that she was mistreating her father, who, by the way, because I guess they're quite estranged right now, admitted to being paid by the tabloids to pose for photos and do interviews. 
Okay, so if you're the new Duchess of Sussex and your dad is sort of selling out to the tabloids, taking money to do interviews, some of them very critical, yeah, I'd be pretty pissed too. Um, And she said all of that sent her to a dark place where, as we learned in the Oprah interview, she was contemplating suicide. Quote, I was like, all this will stop if I'm not here. That was the scariest thing about it. And her mom was interviewed, and she looked heartbroken at the memory. She said, I remember her telling me that she wanted to take her own life, and that really broke her heart. And thank goodness that didn't happen. Now, then we get to this media business. So Harry says, if the comms team wants to remove a negative story about their principal, let's say the communications office for William and Kate, they will trade and give you, meaning the press, something about someone else's principal so the offices end up working against each other. This happened in the Trump White House all the time. I mean, everybody was leaking against everybody else, including the president. And sometimes, you know, they would give a better story to take attention off this other story. The leakiest White House in history, among many other things. Continuing with Harry, William and I both saw what happened in our dad's office. Thank you, King. And we made an agreement we would never let that happen to our office. But that's not how it turned out. And remember, this is Harry's one-sided account. But soon, his brother's press office was, uh, he says, doing the very same thing that we promised the two of us would never, ever do. That was heartbreaking. So finally, because you know this has to be sort of a drama building up to a climax, uh, when Harry and Meghan wanted to step back partially from royal duties, the famous Megxit, and they said they would go to Canada, which of course is still part of the British Empire, and continue to work on behalf of the Queen, that was promptly leaked to the press, forcing this emergency family summit in Sandringham. I love these names of these old British towns. Harry, it was terrifying to have my brother scream and shout at me, and my father saying things that simply weren't true, and my grandmother quietly sitting there and sort of take it all in. Wow. Okay. Uh, Movie to follow, right? Or is this the next episode of The Crown? I don't know. But screaming match? That does not sound like fun. And then this is, I think, the worst part from Harry's point of view. As he was leaving the meeting, he read a joint statement from himself and his brother that went out without his input or permission. The statement denied claims that Harry was pushed out by William's bullying, calling the accusation offensive and potentially harmful. So they put out a statement in the names of both brothers that Harry had never seen. And of course, how do you walk that back once, you know, all the papers are running with it. Here's what the two brothers say. I couldn't believe it, Harry said. No one had asked me. No one had asked me to put my name to a statement like that. He said he rang Megan, who just bring her up, who burst into a flood of tears because within four hours, they, the palace, were happy to lie to protect my brother, as in the case of that bogus statement. And yet for three years, they were never willing to tell the truth to protect us. And that comes down to, if you had to boil it down to one sentence, 
you know, telling lies about us, but they wouldn't defend us when we were telling the truth because it didn't fit the narrative that Buckingham Palace wanted out there, particularly once Harry and Meghan decided, you know, let's get out of here. Let's go to Canada. They end up, of course, in California. Let's make lots and lots and lots and lots of money, but we still are kind of called the Duke and Duchess. So they haven't completely split. I don't know if that'll happen. I mean, think what, what is King Charles thinking about all this? Especially, you know, screaming, all the screaming matches. Wow. But one thing that Harry said that I found a little bit poignant was he said when all this negative press coverage was happening and when his wife was having suicidal thoughts, he said he didn't deal with it well. I had been trained to worry more about what are people going to think. And looking back at it now, I hate myself for it. What she needed from me was so much more than I was able to give. In other words, he reacted as a member of the royal family, worrying about public perception rather than worrying about this spiraling depression by his wife. Well, that's about as dramatic reading as I can give it. I spared you the British accent this time, but it bloody well is a mess. And, you know, where I think there's overreaction to some of the earlier episodes, I mean, this one, you know, declaration of war, I wouldn't go that far, but the UK press is having a field day. So, you know, I, mean, I think we might get to this on Sunday's Media Buzz. A lot of decisions I still have to make about the show, it's, as it's only Thursday. Appreciate the chance to have this extended conversation. Thank you for sharing this time with me. Hope you'll subscribe. And we're back here tomorrow. See you then with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.